0: Ambition, getting ahead, chasing success. It can feel so positive, even exciting. We're ambitious for a better life and we're going to hustle as hard as we can to get there. But then one day, the world stops. Work as we know it transforms. And the mountain we've been striving to climb doesn't look quite the same anymore. In 2020, with the onset of the pandemic, ambition shifted for millions of people. We started to ask, not for the first time in history, who really benefits from all this collective desperation to succeed? Have we just internalised an outside pressure to want more? To scramble over others in our climb to the top? I'm Cassie Verber, your host for Work Reconsidered, a podcast from Quartz. Today we're talking about ambition, what we lose by getting ahead. Today, I'm joined by courts at Work senior reporter Sarah Todd. Hi, Sarah.
1: Hi, Cassie.
0: I loved your intro very dramatic. <laughs>
1: <Thank you. laughs> and dramatic was definitely what I was going for. What does ambition
0: mean to you, Sarah? Are you ambitious?
1: You know, I think I've gone through different periods in my life with different levels of ambition and defining it differently. Right now, I would say that I'm ambitious for my own happiness, but not necessarily ambitious in a strictly work-related context, though not not ambitious either. I also (laughs) think that I have a lot of imposter syndrome, which winds up sort of like undermining some of my ambitions sometimes too.
0: When we talk about ambition, what do we mean? Do we mean rising higher at work or acquiring more stuff? Or do we mean striving for the best possible life, which will obviously
1: be different for every different person? Like, what do we mean when we talk about it? Yeah, I think it can mean a lot of different things to different people, of course. But Mm -hmm. I would say for the purposes of how we're talking about it in this episode, I think that I'm talking about ambition as it refers to the sort of like goal-oriented, achievement-oriented mindset where you're looking ahead and it doesn't necessarily have to mean like getting the promotion and, you know, getting a big paycheck, but that's often what it can mean. Mm -hmm. Or it might mean something like um, writing your first book. Something like that, I think, definitely falls into the sort of like traditional idea of ambition.
0: Yeah. So kind of work-related, high achievement, maybe. Yeah. And how would you characterize ambition and success before the pandemic? like, was Western society, in your view, in a particularly ambitious phase? Um, And what would that even look like?
1: Yeah, so of course, I'm going to be speaking in some generalizations here. But Mm -hmm. that said, I would say that for the 10 years or so running up to the pandemic was an interesting time for ambition. We had, you know, the 2008 Great Recession financial crisis, which put a lot of people in significant amounts of financial constraints. A lot of people lost their jobs. And for young people who were graduating into the recession as well, they were starting off their careers at a tough time. Yes, Interestingly, I think what that did for ambition and the way that people thought about ambition at least for a lot of millennials in particular, was internalizing this idea that you had to really hustle hard, you had to work really hard, because the mm. the economy wasn't guaranteed to just give you a safety net and the things that you needed. Um, and Helen Peterson talks about this in her essay on millennial burnout for BuzzFeed that went viral some years back. She says, basically, you had to train yourself to be the best worker possible. So... I think that was going on. And then interestingly intersecting with that and possibly feeding off of it too was the rise of this Silicon Valley entrepreneurial mindset. You know, um, everybody's making an Uber for everything. Yeah. We had the idea of, you know, the rise and grind girl boss. So I think that there was also this idea that because the economic safety net wasn't guaranteed Uh, there was this sort of like you know love of entrepreneurialism this idea that if you uh, took matters into your own hands maybe you could come out okay on the other end
0: yeah so basically everybody's striving for personal achievement but also that was quite tied up with their kind of the company they were working for maybe that everybody could push harder and make things succeed more and more, yeah. There was already some talk of burnout, and you mentioned Anne Helen Peterson's piece, which was about millennial burnout specifically, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And then other groups, as well as millennials, were feeling some burnout. Parents were perhaps feeling it already with the kind of lack of childcare making it difficult for them to do the utmost work. And then also, there's been lots of talk about this sandwich generation of people who had care for children and also aging parents. Then the pandemic comes along into this culture of extreme ambition. How do you think the pandemic changed the way people thought about ambition?
1: So I spoke about this question with Devin Price, who's the author of the book, Laziness Does Not Exist. And he had some interesting things to say about how the pandemic changed people's perspectives on ambition. One of the things that I think was really striking was that he says the pandemic was a mortality event in which... People were just, you know, on a mass scale confronted with the reality that lives are finite and we all Mm -hmm. might die someday. And that has people reconsidering, you know, whether work is what really makes them happy in this life. At the same time, people also had more time to just reflect in general, because you were home a lot more. And again, that leads to, you know, having the space to not physically be at work for remote workers also makes people thinking more about what they really care about and what they enjoy. Then I think that there were some other things happening. So a lot of people got laid off early on in the pandemic. Others realized that they were being forced to come to work and potentially risking their their health and their lives and their families' lives. So there was a sense that, you can work as hard as, as you want, but it's not going to guarantee rewards or getting things back from the company. And I think that that has also had an impact on the way that people think about ambition.
0: What does Devin Price say about laziness? Because I know his book is called Laziness Does Not Exist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? Why is that the title? And what's his thesis on laziness?
1: Yeah, so it's all tied up with the themes that we're talking about when it comes to ambition and productivity. So he basically says that culturally, on a mass scale, we've all bought into the laziness lie. And there are three core components of the laziness lie. They are your worth is your productivity. Mm-hmm. There's always more that you could be doing. Uh-huh. Yeah, And you cannot trust your own feelings and limits. And so combined what this ambition mindset does to us, and I'm going to quote a short passage from his book, um, it says that it tells us that we must never be satisfied. We must keep running after new opportunities, which makes life less rewarding and enjoyable because we never get to truly savor or appreciate what we've done or where we've been. So, um, you know, part of the problem that he's identifying with ambition then is that it never stops, that we're not allowed to really enjoy our lives and that it's counterproductive to achieving happiness.
0: Yeah, so we have all this drive to succeed, but we can never reap the rewards of that success almost.
1: Exactly, and then another really important point that he makes in the book is about how the laziness lie is internalized and and also thrust upon marginalized people in particular, whether that means that you're a queer or a person of color or grew up in poverty, a lot of people kind of are are taught to believe that if you go above and beyond, then you'll be safe, then you'll be accepted. And so that's another big issue with the way that our culture kind of teaches people to think about ambition, because there's no point at which you're actually going to be safe.
0: Yeah. And also, does he talk about how things change throughout like a life? Like a life is a long time to remain kind of thrusting forwards the entire
1: time. Does he talk about the kind of the shifts through life and age? Yeah. In in our conversation, Devin also talked a bit about how as we age, inevitably, things are going to happen. We may get sick, we may become disabled. Um, if you become a parent, you may have young kids, that just means that your career has to take a backseat for a while. And If you equate your life's worth and your value with your ability to produce and achieve, then when you suddenly can't work anymore, can't work in the same way, that is, you know, basically guaranteed to make people feel horrible about themselves quite unfairly. Yeah. So essentially, like when these events
0: happen, it's like we become lazy in our own eyes. And he's saying that, like, no, it is the way that society is structured that makes us believe that.
1: Exactly. He says we castigate ourselves. And he also says, you know, a lot of the time what we interpret as laziness is actually something else. It might be burnout. It might be that you're depressed. Even mm-hmm. if you're apathetic about life, that may be a sign that the people around you have have failed you because, you know, your your parents, your teachers haven't introduced you to things that you would care about and want to do.
0: But what if you do really want things and if you're striving to get to a particular place or a salary or something that you want to achieve in your career, would Devon say that you've just been brainwashed by the system and that your drive isn't really yours and you only want things because somehow you've been told to?
1: Actually, when I talked to Devon, one of the things that was interesting is that he is making this argument, but he's also writing multiple books. He's he's quite busy mm-hmm. and, you know, like um, from an outside perspective, achieving a lot. Yeah. And he says the way he reconciles that is that it does feel good to strive for things and try to do stuff. But that takes work, too, in in itself to figure out what is really important to you. What do you really care about, we all should be reflecting on what our real values are and directing our energy toward that and understanding that it might have nothing to do with a career in the traditional sense. It might mean that you're writing poetry on your computer or that you're focusing on running a half marathon. You know, it could be things that that really have nothing to do with advancing in your working world. Also, you know, it's okay to have dips in your ambition. You know, it doesn't have to be a consistent thing where your life is a linear up, up, up Mm -hmm. type of shape. It can be that there are times when you're taking it easy and that's perfectly fine and in fact good. Um, And then times when you're concentrating more. The other that I wanted to mention about the idea of is ambition always a bad thing I read a really interesting essay by Maris Kreitzman in uh, that was written in June 2020 in Jen and what she talks about is how the pandemic made her ambition go away in a lot of ways because it kind of reminded her some of the stuff that we were talking about before Mm -hmm. like uh, you know what's the point of trying to succeed when the world isn't a meritocracy and things just fall apart on you. But she says that what she was finding during the pandemic and during this time, it was during the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, was that her ambitions for her community and the world were getting Mm -hmm. much bigger. And she says, I don't know exactly where I fit in it, but I do know that I want all workers to be treated with dignity and respect. And I think that's another really interesting way of thinking about ambition, not from an individual perspective, but from a collective one.
0: When you were reporting on ambition, did you come across any ways that people are actively changing their attitudes to ambition or trying to change or subvert the ambition system that they find themselves caught up in?
1: Yeah, there are lots of really interesting ways. So, one thing that I found this actually, the idea dates back to 2011. There's this article on the website Grist called Medium Chill by David Roberts. And what he talks about is the idea of accepting that what you have is enough. Mm -hmm. And so, he talks in that essay about the idea that like he and his wife are married, have kids, have a car, have like a house. And all of them are things that they could be trying to improve. They could be trying to earn more money so they can buy another car. And they could tr- be trying to buy a bigger house. Yeah. But he says, you know, if we do that, it's just going to mean more work and more stress and less time to spend with the family. So he recommends stepping off what he calls the aspirational treadmill and accepting some material constraints. Yeah. And I think that's one thing. This predates the pandemic, but I think a lot of people are coming around to that idea. There's actually a term in economics that describes this strategy. It's called satisficing. (laughs) Love that. And it means that you're not necessarily going for the optimal, the best solution. You're just like, good enough. That's fine. Yeah. Another really interesting method of trying to actively counteract our relationship with ambition are the principles outlined by anti-work, which is a Reddit thread that has also become a bit of a a subculture and a movement. So there are a lot of different principles, but some of the ones that I think are most interesting are don't go above and beyond at work. Mm. So often we're taught that we have to really impress our bosses and we have to stay late and that's how you're gonna get rewarded. They say, no, one, you're not gonna get rewarded To just take it easy. Similarly, there's this idea of go slow, I think is what it's called. So, this idea has to do, it goes back to the collectivist idea as well, where when you're working really hard and really speedily on a task, that can actually negatively impact your colleagues because now they're expected to work at that pace too. My mom actually has a story going back to when she was a teenager where she had a temporary job boxing up shoes. And she was like doing it really efficiently because she found it boring, basically. And then one of the women on the little assembly line turned to her and said, slow down. (laughs) And the idea there being, you know, when you do that, you're counteracting this like cultural pressure to achieve, to do more, do faster. Yeah. And then there's also the idea of job crafting, which is a less sort of like actively rebellious, but still very interesting way to reshape your relationship with ambition. So what job crafting means is basically like you may not have to leave your job or switch jobs in order to shape your job around what your values are and what you actually want. Often there's more room to negotiate within your job itself. So, you know, if you are writing marketing copy for a nonprofit and what you really care about is animals maybe you find a way to propose that the nonprofit start you know doing more work with animals and then you're writing about it for your blog and then you can take your job in a different direction that actually is more aligned with what your values are makes sense so it's
0: not like trying to subvert the goals of your work or anything you're basically just doing your work in a way that is more satisfying to you personally
1: with job crafting, yes. With some of these other things, no. I think that subversion is part of the goal in a fun way. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. they mostly predate the pandemic? Yeah. And even anti work as a sub existed pre pandemic, but it really took off during the pandemic. But yeah. Okay. All of the ideas these ideas have been around for a while, but I think what's different is that like we're talking about them and you know, so vocally and collectively as a culture.
0: So let's talk a bit about other places where ambition is in flux. I know you spoke to Jane Lee, who is one of our Quartz reporters based in Hong Kong.
1: How are people thinking about ambition and striving there? So in China, it's really interesting because I think that people are confronting ambition in very similar ways to what we're seeing in the U.S. and, and the U.K., You know, there's long been this idea in Chinese culture that you have to work really hard, be productive, get married, have kids. And instead, what Jane says is happening is the rise of this movement called Lying Flat, which she calls an almost monastic outlook on life, where you're trying not only not to work or to work as little as possible, but also to consume less, to avoid having a family. Basically, just kind of giving the the middle finger to (laughs) any cultural ideas of what you're supposed to do with your life.
0: And what did she say about the origins of that movement? Where did it come from? Um, Is it a collective thing of people of lots of people been doing that? together, or did somebody spark it
1: off? Yeah, so the reason why Lying Flat as an idea really took off has to do with one particular Chinese internet user who wrote a really influential post on social media about what they wanted to do with their own lives.
2: So basically... The person was saying he hasn't worked for the past two years and he feels there is totally nothing wrong about not working. He wanted to live like the Asian philosophers and sleep inside a wooden bucket, enjoying sunshine and or living in a cave just by basically enjoying life itself while stop pursuing the excessive success. And I think there is something especially resonated with a young audience. Uh, One of his sentences especially touched people in which he basically was saying this land has never had a school of thought that upholds human subjectivity. And now he can develop one of his own, which is lying down, which he labels as his own philosophic movement. He
1: wasn't a celebrity or particularly important person. He was just a a random man who explained his philosophy. Mm. He mentions that the Asian philosophers, the ancient Asian philosophers said that you should spend your life asleep in a wooden bucket enjoying the sunshine or living in a cave. (laughs) And now he wanted to develop his own school of thought around that, which is lying down. That's his philosophical movement. And
0: why did it catch on so much or how popular is it and why is it so
1: popular? So it it has really spread as an idea, so much so that the Chinese government is actually trying to censor certain discussions about lying flat on the internet. Wow. Uh, whether or not people are able to enact on it is a different story because, you know, just the reality is that people have to work and pay bills and it's not so easy to refuse work necessarily. But that's actually not the total point of lying flat either. I think the real point of it isn't to say, you know, you can totally issue work in society and live in a cave, although that might be very cool. But to say in this kind of passive resistance to what the Chinese government in particular has told people who live there that they must do with their lives, it can also be an an individual form of rebellion.
0: And did... Jane talk as well about why it's caught on like what state people were in that made them kind of want to go with this movement.
1: Yes, thank you for reminding me about that part of your question. Yes. <laughs> so, some of the reasons why I caught on have to do with uh, Chinese work culture in particular. So, in uh, Chinese culture, there's the problem of 996 work culture. Yes. Which basically involves working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, which is exhausting. Very long, mm-hmm. exhausting week. Yes. <laughs> um, so, already, I think a lot of people in China are feeling fed up with that. Yeah. Also, the pandemic. I, again, as as was the case in the US and the UK, impacted a lot of people's job opportunities. Factories shut down. It became harder to find good jobs at tech companies. Mm. And all of that also, I think, has younger people in China in particular thinking, you know, why strive and try hard and, and compete when ultimately I'm not going to get what I've been told I'll get in the end. And why is this
0: considered rebellious in the Chinese context, why is not doing very much frowned upon? And like, how is the Chinese government reacting to it?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, so I love what Jane says about this. She says, basically, that the passiveness is in some ways more annoying to the Chinese government and harder to stamp out than, you know, demonstrations and protests.
2: The party, as we all know, is very good at crushing physical protests, For the party, physical protests are not a problem because they have digital surveillance and they have very forceful police force and other uh, state power to crash those. But for lying flat, this kind of passive nonviolent resistance, the party has almost no way of crashing it. Imagine they can't go to like households and yelling at the people who are posting about lying flat and saying, oh, you can't say that. They actually ca- have the capacity to do that. But in reality, they can't really crush this kind of discontent, right?
1: She calls it an effective yet safe way of resisting the rat race. But are they trying to crush it? Yes, with some censorship uh-huh. of, you know, like uh, discussions of lying flat online. But I think from my impression from what Jane says is that while there's some efforts at censorship, it's not really working at quelling. People find other ways to discuss it. They can always talk in code. You know, it's, it's very hard to stop.
0: What about this movement called Touching Fish, which I think
1: you also talked to Jane about? Yes. So Touching Fish is related to the idea of lying flat, but it's not exactly the same. So in China, Touching Fish emerged also around 2020 as an idea. And it's similar to what we were talking about earlier about not going above and beyond. The idea with Touching Fish is to do as little as possible at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Touching Fish comes from a Chinese idiom that says, muddy waters make it easy to catch fish. Mm -hmm. So the idea there is that, you know, when there's a lot going on, when things are very chaotic, it's easier to get away with doing what you want and, in some cases, doing nothing. The idea being, again, like there's no real chance at mobility anyway, so why bother? But also, this is an effective way of undermining the company that you work for. So Jane interviewed one person who talked about how she would drink a lot of water at the office so that she (laughs) would have to go pee a lot. And this was like a very clever sort of individual form of resistance.
0: (laughs) So in the West, we've been seeing what's been called the Great Resignation, where some people are quitting their jobs and stepping back or changing what they do. And we have these movements like anti-work that have sprung up on Reddit, and then it's kind of exploded off that platform. Do you see a connection between these things and lying flat in China? Are they the
1: same thing? I do. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of similarities among them both the things that people are frustrated with which come down to capitalism and empty promises about the rewards of ambition I think is what they're fundamentally a response to yeah and then also I think the idea of you know it's one thing to try to overhaul the system in the Active rebellion, sort of way, but this sort of passive resistance, I think, is really taking off as an idea. In part because it's so much more accessible. Yeah, it, it can be a collective movement, but all that it requires to start the change is like really within your power. You can refuse to work the way that you've been told that you should, and that in itself can maybe have a big impact. And I think both both Lying Flat and the anti-work movement and some of the underlying ideas behind the Great Resignation have all in common this idea that Jenny O'Dell also talks about in her book called uh, Resistance in Place. So... She says that to resist in place is, now I'm quoting from from her book, to make oneself into a shape that cannot so easily be appropriated by the capitalist system. To do this means refusing the frame of reference in which value is determined by productivity, strength of one's career, and individual entrepreneurship. Mm. So I like this idea of resistance in place. And I think fundamentally, that's what all of these have in common.
0: Yeah, I love that idea too. Um, How does Jane think that this will play out long
2: term? Mm. So
1: we asked her that and she says...
2: Ambition in China in 20 years could be very different from what it looks like now, by which I mean ambition in China currently basically, as I mentioned, is basically about the material goods, the material success that one can get in their lives. But I think in 20 years' time, people might become more spiritual instead of only considering the material goods. Yeah, so I think that could be what ambition looks like in China.
1: Which would indeed be a big shift from the kind of consumerist culture that's risen up there in recent decades, similar to in the U.S. In a way, it would be kind of a shift back, right?
0: Like, arguably, we've been in more spiritual kind of periods before this.
1: Well, the cultural pendulum can swing back and forth. I think that we may really be seeing the start of a very different relationship with capitalism and with ambition and with the way we think about our careers. Yeah, Uh,
0: and I think we're seeing that in other areas as well, that change in the way we think about capitalism and what it's for and what it's doing to our planet and to our future. So it doesn't feel like this is happening in isolation. It's not just a movement of people um, and their individual feelings about their work and their lives. Definitely. What should people do if they're not quite ready to reject the work ethic completely, but they do want to lead happy and less stressful lives?
1: So Devon also has a really great practical exercise that we can employ if we wanna take even a small step toward redefining our relationship with ambition. And he says that this involves learning to savor, savoring the moments that we're in. It's not just about enjoying the present, but it's also kind of like extending the present moment. So there are four components to learning to savor. Mm -hmm. There's showing your good mood hugging and skipping and laughing and being generally joyful. That's going to help you really experience your, your presence in the moment. Yep. There's focusing on the experience as it's happening, which we talk about a lot with mindfulness and Buddhism, this idea of being in the present. Then there's capitalizing. Mm. So that's when you get good news, share it with people and really celebrate it. Don't downplay it. You know, go out yeah. and have a glass of champagne, revel. And then there's positive mental time travel, which involves looking back on your happy memories. For a lot of people, it's much easier to focus on negative experiences than positive ones. So he says learning to savor is also about, you know, maybe like looking back through photos and thinking about what a great vacation that was and then planning your next vacation too. And all of that can really help.
0: Thank you so much, Sarah. I found this Really, really fascinating. And I feel like you have reflected deeply on ambition, and I know a lot more about it as a result.
1: Thanks, Cassie. I feel like you did too. You know so much about ambition. <laughs> Great questions. Thank you.
0: Work Reconsidered is a podcast from Quartz. I'm your host, Cassie Verber, and I was joined today by Quartz reporter Sarah Todd. This episode was produced by Sarah Todd and Nicole Kelly. Our sound engineer is George Strake. And our executive producer is Alex Osala. This episode was edited by Francesca Donner. Our theme music is by Taka Yazuzawa and Alex Sugira. Special thanks to Devon Price and Jane Lee. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends to listen to. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. How ambitious are you? To give us your take, email us at work@qz.com And to read more about our lives at work, head to qveb.com slash work.